Welcome to the Blue Security Podcast, a weekly podcast for information security defenders, where we bring you discussions on best practices, tools, and implementation for enterprise security. Now, here are your hosts for today's show, Andy Ja and Adam Brewer. Welcome to this week's episode of the Blue Security Podcast. I'm Andy, your host. I'm Adam, your co-host. And... Happy NFL Sunday to those who just finished watching the game. Congratulations to the 49ers and the Chiefs for another appearance at the Super Bowl. Adam, I see you have your 49ers jersey on. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's a lot of Chiefs fans out there who are very happy. So congratulations to those two. We're going to be talking about the midnight blizzard attack on Microsoft tonight. Oftentimes, as security defenders, we learn from security incidents at other organizations and in this case it's microsoft so we'll talk about a little bit of an academic review of what happened and some things that we can learn to make organizations safer the phrasing academic review is perfect uh, obviously as a show for security defenders we have from time to time discussed uh, security incidents at, at other organizations and we've discussed security incidents at microsoft andy and i both work for microsoft it's the show is something we do outside of work. It's not funded by Microsoft. Microsoft has no editorial review of the show, uh, but obviously always good to keep your in your employer's good graces. Uh, we are both field sales folks in our security business. So when it comes to responding to security incidents, we're not looped into that conversation other than anything that's shared with us to discuss with our customers. Now, in this case, all of the relevant information has all been publicly disclosed. So Guiding today's conversation, we have pulled material exclusively from our public-facing blog posts on this issue, uh, of which there's been two now. And I think the first one was kind of an initial one, say, this happened, we're still collecting information. The second one has a lot of information that we put out there really for the express purpose of helping security defenders secure their own organizations. And that's what we're really going to touch on today. So just to be clear... If you're expecting anything new or novel or unique regarding the midnight blizzard incident at Microsoft, we have nothing to share on this show. We're just moving, working from the public information. And if we accidentally say anything that is in conflict with the public information, it is not a Freudian slip. It's just an accident. Revert to the public blog if there's ever a conflict between what we say and what the blog says. The blog is accurate. We are not. We're working from that ourselves. Uh, and and finally, um, you know, we think it's great practice to learn from security incidents everywhere. And I think we'll touch on this as the show goes along. But I I'm appreciative of what Microsoft has done to be so forthcoming so quickly with some of the lessons learned from this incident and helping security defenders across the industry harden their own environments. And that's really the focus for tonight's show. So from a very, very high level, Microsoft revealed on Friday, January 19th, that they discovered a nation state attack on its corporate systems. It's the same Russian state-sponsored group that's responsible for SolarWinds. They're also known as Nobelium, but they're dubbed Midnight Blizzard by Microsoft. The attack actually began in November of 2023 and was detected on January 12th, 2024. The initial attack vector shared by Microsoft in the initial blog post was a password spray attack to compromise a legacy non-production test tenant account, which then was used to gain a foothold 
and they used some of the account's permissions to access a very small percentage of Microsoft corporate email accounts, including members of the senior leadership team and employees within cybersecurity, legal, and other functions. And some emails and attached documents were exfiltrated. So that was the high-level overview from the initial blog post. And I think a lot of people, myself included, I know Adam had some questions of how a test tenant account would have permissions to production systems. And in the following blog post, it revealed some of that as well. So some important notes though, as we're going through this, is that the attack was not a result of a vulnerability. There was no CVE associated with this attack. There wasn't a vulnerability in Microsoft's products or their servers or their services. And there was no evidence that the threat actor had access customer environments production systems, source codes, or AI systems. The initial investigation actually indicated that they targeted email accounts for information relating to Midnight Blizzard itself. So they were actually trying to find out Intel on what Microsoft knew about them, which I thought was kind of interesting. That was their main first go-to thing was to look up email accounts with information that talked about Nobelium or Midnight Blizzard itself. Yeah, um, just one note here. So just to reemphasize, you you went over this. Um, Microsoft uses language to describe like corporate systems is corporate IT, email, intranets, file sharing, teams, stuff like that. Then they talk about customer environments or production systems. Like the amount of steps you have to go through to gain access to production systems or especially customer data inside of Microsoft are a tremendous leap forward. It looks like Midnight Blizzard was not really interested in going that direction anyway. However, that would have been a significant additional leap. And um, according to both of these blog posts, that has not. there's been no evidence of that being accessed to date. So that is good, although not unexpected, because of the segmentation of our environment. Gaining that access requires... Um, just just a lot more to be able to get there. You need a paw or a saw. You need um, physical two-factor, fish-resistant authentication like smart cards or FIDO2 keys and uh, all those sorts of things. So it's it's just really, really difficult to get there. It's a big leap forward from, hey, I was able to read some email. So in the second blog, there were significant amounts of more technical details on the attack itself. Like we said before, the initial attack vector was a password spray on a legacy non-production test tenant account. And this account, of course, if they were able to gain access through a password spray attack, it did not have MFA enabled. So that was probably one of the misconfigurations as part of this. Today, if that same team were to deploy the legacy tenant, mandatory Microsoft policy would ensure MFA as well as other active protections to enable and comply with current policies and guidance. And so this was probably one of those legacy systems that just fell under and did not have any governance on it and unfortunately just fell through the cracks. But if it were deployed today, there are significant security policies that would prevent this from happening. Midnight Blizzard also was very smart about their password spray attack. They tailored it to limit the number of counts and They used a low number of attempts to evade detection and avoid account blocks based on volume of failures. 
So they just very slowly did it. And then as part of also this password spray attack, they used a distributed residential proxy infrastructure with constant changing IP addresses and IP addresses that are associated with good known access to help obfuscate their activity, which allowed them to persist the attack over time until successful. And, you know, it just kind of reminds me of that. I don't know there's the, the attackers where uh, it's like a movie where you're trying to get revenge on someone like, Hey, I got nothing but time. And one day you're just gonna be looking over your shoulder and I'm going to be there. Right. It's, they just have nothing but time and they're just sitting there spamming a very small amount of passwords at the limited number of accounts just over and over and over again until they're successful. And that's the unfortunate part I think of this attack is that while there were some misconfigurations, this is just the nature of attack and defense. That attackers just have to get that one right thing and they have a lot if you have a lot of time you can just keep on doing the thing until you're detected or you're successful yeah really good call out and um just want to re-emphasize something because i was listening to windows weekly within the last couple of weeks and paul therott who normally i think does a really nice job with uh that show and i, I really enjoy listening to him don't always agree with him but think he generally knows what he's talking about uh, seemed pretty clear that he doesn't know what password spray means, at least in the context of how Microsoft talks about password spray. And so the second post really describes it if you're unfamiliar with Microsoft's concept of it, but is exactly as they described, where it sprayed a limited number of accounts using a low number of attempts and, and was very slow and over time. Password spray is very intentional about not triggering account lockouts. Like if you're triggering account lockouts, that's brute force. And brute force is different than password spray. Password spray is low and slow. Um, and basically account lockout intervals, for the most part, don't prevent it, except for like unused accounts. Um, any actively used account, you're going to get a known good sign in at some point, and it's going to reset the lockout. And that's also what they did here. So just want to really emphasize this. If if you're listening to the show, you're probably familiar with it. But just in case you're not, I heard some some uh, uh, podcast that had me screaming at my at my car saying, "Don't you know what a password spray is?" Uh, setting like account lockout thresholds, like bad attempt thresholds, would not prevent this. And so there was a little bit of dismissiveness of like, "How bad could the security have been if you weren't preventing against?" brute force like this is very different conceptually so just want to emphasize that and, and they they give more detail on that and andy maybe like i think you touched on as well of everything we're going to cover this was almost the least bit on you know mfa would have fixed it would have prevented it obviously i mean you could have still maybe determined the password but with mfa or other conditional access policies could have helped protect it but with the methodology they used with the residential proxy with known good IPs essentially means there's no IOCs from an IP address or IP space perspective because they're, they're valid, good IP blocks. And um, password spray also is just very difficult to detect and very difficult to prevent. Uh, Microsoft actually has really good password spray detection built into our environment. Obviously, it did not catch this one. But there are many attacks it does catch, and that's something we continue to fine-tune over time as well. And that's where I always do argue 
cloud infrastructure is safer in that sense because cloud infrastructure can see those needles in the haystack, can see that signal from the noise, and can oftentimes block these attacks even when they're low volume, slow, um, and kind of check all the right boxes for a really good password spray attack. So um, some of the other stuff we'll talk about are, are maybe more actionable, but this is still a good one to learn from too. Yeah, there are protections for password spray. It's not like we don't have them, but it's like if you were to take one password, let's say right now could be winter 2024, mm -hmm. right? With a capital W and an exclamation mark at the end. It's going to be a very common password that's going to be used. And you take that and you just use that one password against, you know, a thousand employees in one organization. You're probably going to get a hit. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that if you do it, very quickly in a day, there are protections that will probably pick that up. I don't know where the threshold is, right. the number of accounts, but that many, you're probably going to get caught, right? But if I only did that against five accounts one day and then maybe three accounts the next day, you know, and I just did it very slowly. Slow and random. Small number of accounts, random accounts, you know, that is very difficult to uh, to detect because it mm -hmm. just looks like one person signed in with the wrong password, which happens all the time. Right. Right. Think about how many times like you, if you're actually entering in passwords, how many times you might enter in the wrong one before you enter in the right one. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm um, that's what I'm saying is with a really experienced attacker like this and doing all the right things with password spray, you can make it look almost imperceptible from the random bad password attempts that are normal and inherent in an environment. And so that's where defense in depth comes in, layers of protection. So once Midnight Blizzard got access, they were able to identify a legacy test OAuth application that had elevated access to the Microsoft corporate environment. The actor then created additional malicious OAuth apps, and they created a new account to grant consent in the Microsoft corporate environment to the actor-controlled malicious OAuth applications. The threat actor then used legacy test OAuth app to grant the access to Office 365 Exchange Online with the full access as app role, which allowed them access to the mailboxes. And they leveraged these malicious OAuth apps to authenticate, to exchange online, and target the corporate email accounts. So as we talked about before, they used the multiple... Uh, residential proxy networks in order to obfuscate their attacks. And because those IP addresses are used by legitimate users, it was really hard to detect it. Um, it just was almost impossible based on, you know, the high changeover of the IP addresses. So it was really interesting to read that this was an OAuth attack because mm -hmm. it is something that we see, but I haven't seen anything like this in a really long time. But as part of the threat intel in the blog, Nobelium is actually very skilled at using OAuth attacks. So they're actually known for this type of attack and they're very good at looking at different permissions of the applications and kind of laterally moving using different types of OAuth permissions. So as part of the blog and then as part of the show tonight, we wanted to talk about OAuth security recommendations to kind of look at your own OAuth security in your org. We have talked about some of this, but it's always good to review. First and foremost, you wanna audit the current privileges 
of all your identities, both user and service principles in your tenant using the Microsoft Graph Data Connect authorization portal. I didn't know actually that this existed. It's been a while since I've looked at M365 Admin Center and some of the new things that they've added in there. We'll include a link to the authorization portal, but it's under org settings in the M365 Admin Portal and security and privacy. And there's something called this Microsoft Graph Data Connect Applications. And as part of that, you can review all the applications that are part uh, that are connecting to your graph data. And then you can look at the identities and the, the status and everything and review that. Um, there's also, if you're a Microsoft Defender for Cloud Apps customer, you can also use that to investigate and remediate risky OAuth apps as well. But the first one, the Graph Connect authorization portal, that's anyone who is a Microsoft customer. You can just go to that and take a look, which I think is really, really helpful. And of course, any privilege to be scrutinized closely if it belongs to an unknown identity. And defenders should also pay uh, attention to any apps that are app-only permissions because those may have been overprivileged accessed and you should audit identities that hold the application impersonation privilege in Exchange Online. Application impersonation allows a caller, such as a service principal, to impersonate a user and perform the same operations that the user themselves could have performed. And it can be configured for services that interact with a mailbox on a user's behalf, like video conferencing and CRM systems. If it is misconfigured or not scoped properly, these identities can have broad access to all mailboxes in the environment. You can review that privilege and the permission within Exchange Online Admin Center or via PowerShell. The PowerShell command is get-management-role-assignment-role-application-impersonation and dash get effective users. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. And that's something you can run <laughs> to just check to see if there's anything that you have enabled to do that. There's also some configurations that you should review as part of user consent and OAuth consent and user settings and all that. So number one, in the M365 Admin Center under services, you should at least review and probably uncheck and disable user consent to apps. When you do that, there has to be an admin flow. It's also the same setting if you were to do it in Azure where you go to enterprise applications, consent to permissions, where users can consent to OAuth applications. So I would recommend, since the default setting is allowing users to do it, and that's where you can easily get over-permissioned OAuth apps, uncheck it and disable it. And then you can validate your user settings within Entra's admin center to make sure that um, you know all these different settings like users can register applications, restricting non-users from creating tenants, abilities for users to create uh, security groups, restricting users to the uh, access to the Entra admin center. So, you know, review those permissions, make sure those are set to what you want. You know, I'm not going to tell you exactly what I would do because Every organization has their own risk profile, but some of these you probably should disable. Um, as far as consent and permissions within the enterprise applications in Azure, there's three different settings. Again, by default, all users can consent 
The most secure one is to not allow users to consent at all, which means only admins have the ability to do that. That's not bad. Obviously, it's the most secure. However, if you have a very large organization and there are business needs and people are using OAuth because there are legitimate purposes for OAuth applications, you may be creating more burden for everyone to have to go through this flow and approve each OAuth application. So sometimes, depending on the number of requests coming in, that may overwhelm a smaller team. So a good balance is the middle one, allowing users to consent from verified publishers for selected permissions. And you get to classify low impact permissions. For example, an app, giving the, an app uh, the ability to read a user profile. That's often one of the default ones. I need to be able to read your profile. I need to be able to read your email address, not necessarily your email, but just the email address as part of my app. So I can put that into a field. Those are fairly low permissions and you can define those as low. And if the app just needs those things, the user then can consent to that app using those low permissions. And that frees up your admin team from not having to go in and, oh, okay, this app just needs to read your profile and your email address. Okay, fine. Right. So I like the balance of the middle one personally, but again, it is up to your organization to determine what your risk is. And if you're like, well, I just want the most secure, then check the do not consent one. And then finally, you know, of course, just to toss in there, Adam, you mentioned how hard it is to get into our production systems, fish resistant, physical, you know, security keys for all your admins is obviously a very good thing that would help here as well. And conditional app access, uh, conditional access app control for any users connecting from an unmanaged device or better yet, just don't allow any unmanaged devices and go with managed devices. So you must have a managed device in order to access the systems. Lots you just covered. And OAuth, I think, is one of those maybe most concerning areas for a lot of our listeners because I think most of our listeners today understand that OAuth apps can have an immense amount of privilege and in some ways they can slip past some of our traditional controls and the way we think about them. Um, and they can even help maintain persistence even after perhaps your identity has been found out and removed if you're a, a bad actor or a threat actor. Um, so, so there's just a tremendous amount of risk with OAuth. Obviously, it's very important and it enables a lot of great tools and, and use cases, but with great power comes great responsibility. And so it's certainly something you really need to keep an eye on. If you're not comfortable with a lot of what we talked about, this is a great area to study and read up on and understand better. Um, uh, obviously, based on some of what we've shared at Microsoft, this was how most of the attack was perpetrated was through creating new OAuth apps, creating an identity to consent to those apps, and then using OAuth apps with basically unfettered permission to exchange online uh, to, to go out and, and read messages from different mailboxes. It's a very clever, very novel um, attack, and I'd imagine we'll see more like this over time. OAuth is very attractive uh, attack vector. So just 
something to really study up on. Andy gave you a ton of good stuff to go study. It will all be in the show notes. I said, I strongly suggest you do that. And just, you know, some final notes here. I, obviously Microsoft is our employer, but I'm also glad that they're being transparent with this attack. There is a lot of data here. There's probably more that again, that Adam and I are not, um, pervy to, you know, because we're just not in that business of the incident response and, and what all took place. And while Microsoft is very, very good at cybersecurity, there's obviously areas of improvement. We're a large organization and we also have a lot of legacy systems. I'm sure if, if you took a look at our OAuth consent, you're like, well, probably should have seen this, but I'm sure if I, I looked at it, I would, you know, my mind would probably explode at how many OAuth applications Microsoft has and how of them have, uh, how many of them have privileged access, you know, so, and maybe as part of this exercise, you know, some of the folks at in cybersecurity just kind of yanked the bandaid off and said, okay, we don't know what these do. We're just going to revoke them and see who yells. And sometimes that's the best way to figure out if someone's actually using those apps. But that's something we've actually said in one of these blog posts. And I believe it was the first one where we talked about um, the secure future initiative that Microsoft has launched, which a lot of folks are comparing to the trustworthy computing initiative of the early 2000s. And I think that's a fair comparison. One of the things we said in one of these blog posts was, hey, we recognize that even as much as we've talked about having a sense of urgency and moving fast, we recognize we need to move even faster. And if we're going to start breaking stuff, then so be it. it. It's better to break a couple of things and then remediate them internally than it is to continue to face these risks that us and all other companies face. So I think it was kind of a a siren call to the industry as a whole to say, we're all not moving fast enough and we're all going to have to move faster and we're all going to have to get more uncomfortable. Um, there's a Mario Andretti quote, and I'm going to mangle it, but it's something to the effect of, if everything feels in control, you're not going fast enough. And I think that's an adage we can start to apply to cybersecurity more and more as well. If you feel like you've got your arms wrapped up around everything and you feel completely in control, as Mario Andretti said, you're not going fast enough. Of course, we'll link the official blogs as part of the show notes. In there, there's even more information than we got a chance to talk about. There's hunting queries for Defender XDR and Sentinel, if those are solutions that you're using. There's additional hardening advice for Entra ID and some information on alerts related to this type of activity as well. So if that's of interest to you, take a look at the blogs. Some lessons learned here, but I think overall good lessons and it's always good to you know touch on this type of stuff even though we've talked about it before. So let's just go ahead and learn from it and make our organizations more secure. Well said. It's, um, it's never fun to be on this side of it. And certainly Andy and I were talking before we went on the air about, hey, have you had any customers reach out to you? And I will actually say, no, I have not. I, I cover 20 different enterprises and zero of them have reached out to me so far to ask about this. And, and now we're, um, as of this recording, what, nine days since it was initially disclosed. So... Um, I think that's a good thing. I, I think that that exudes confidence from our customers that 
we're going to do the right thing and we're going to be transparent and open about what happened and, and help them learn from it and um, help them know that they're, they're not at any particular risk. And, and so uh, as an industry, I think the, the better we get at really leveraging security incidents to be teachable moments instead of the sky is falling and the world is ending and let's go find a scapegoat to blame, the better off we'll all be. And I've lamented sometimes on this show that it feels like we've gotten too comfortable with security incidents. I can say internally, you know, that's not been the case. We're definitely not comfortable with this, um, but we are using it as a teachable moment. And there is a sense of calm about let's take what we can learn and move forward and, and use it as a impetus to move faster. And that's our show for this week. Thanks for watching and listening. As always, our contact information will be in the show notes along with the links to the blogs and articles that we used for the show. Thanks. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Blue Security Podcast. Please check out the show notes, catch up on episodes you may have missed, and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Find Andy on Twitter at AJawZero and Adam at AJ Brewer. See you at our next episode.